Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Growing up in England, I'm accustomed to seeing really old things. I was christened in a Norman Abbey, so that's a good thousand years old. I went to a school in a Victorian building, so from the 19th century. But it's still rather breathtaking when someone shows you a piece of woven cloth that is 2,000 years old, which you'll hear about later in today's programme. Chris Hall is a retired tax advisor. He's also a collector. He has a beautiful flat with coloured walls, French furniture, stained glass windows. Just lovely. But what we're focusing on today is equally beautiful. Chris Hall, since the late 1970s, has put together easily one of the top ten collections of Chinese textiles in the world. Born in the Sudan before the country became independent, Chris Hall moved to Hong Kong for the first time when he was two years old. He would go to the UK at the age of seven for boarding school education, returning to Hong Kong and making the city his home in 1978. Well, there are two aspects to my collection. My main collection is Chinese textiles. I came back in 1978 and... I was walking through the old Mandarin Hotel where Sotheby's were having a viewing and it was their first auction of Chinese textiles and for me it was love at first sight. My salary then was $4,500 a month which didn't leave a lot for buying Chinese textiles but it got me interested and after a few salary increases, I started to buy. And what appealed to you when you say it was love at first sight? What aspect? The colours, the patterns, the, the, the actual textile itself? I love the colours. I mean, if you look at my apartment, my apartment has no white walls. All the walls are painted in bright colours, and there are bright colours everywhere around me, which is a great joy for me. I realised that there was a great opportunity to collect Chinese textiles. When I started, I'm, um, I tell people that collectors are born. So as a boy, I collected stamps, history books and other things. And when I started collecting in the 80s, I was collecting portrait miniatures. and Of what, particularly? Before photography, people would have their portraits painted on ivory. It would be only about three inches high. They might wear it as a locket, or it was something that they could carry with them. And these portrait miniatures are beautifully done. You can blow them up many times, and you can still see all the details. I was also collecting pocket watches and I was collecting Japanese textiles. But I realised that, I mean, in Japanese textiles, the great collection had been put together before the Second World War. Whereas for Chinese textiles, there had only been one collector in the early republic. And there was very little interest in old Chinese textiles. Also, in the 80s, it was a great opportunity to collect Chinese textiles because China was opening up and the Chinese had not kept their old textiles because China had so much silk. It's like, I mean, if you've got curtains, they cost a lot of money, you hang them, but after 10 or 15 years, they're faded, dirty, and you throw them away and you replace them. So China had plenty of silk, it replaced all its textiles, it never kept them. But there was one place which did treasure Chinese textiles, and this was Tibet. They couldn't make the textiles. The Tibetan monasteries would send religious texts to the emperor, and then he would give 
beautiful silks back to the monasteries, which they would then keep for their Buddhist ceremonies. If you go into a Buddhist temple, you'll see lots of textiles hanging around. When the monasteries were closed, the gold, the silver, the bronze were removed by the Chinese, but they were not interested in the textiles, so many of the textiles were handed out to the Tibetans. And in the 1980s, some of the Tibetans in Nepal went into Tibet and started buying these early textiles. And also, one of the few places the Tibetans in Nepal with a Nepali passport could go without a visa was Hong Kong, because of the Gurkhas, the Nepalese troops in Hong Kong. So they would buy these and then buy these textiles and bring them to Hong Kong. Right. And so I was in a very good position to buy these early textiles. I mean, when I started collecting, very few museums had any Chinese textiles dating before the 18th century. We were now seeing 15th, 16th, 17th century textiles in abundance. So I was able to buy some very good pieces, which you wouldn't be able to buy today. That's extraordinary. I had no idea that's how you built up your collection. I, I got to know sort of the textile dealers who lived in Nepal. They would bring the textiles to Hong Kong, their first port of call on their way to New York or London where they'd sell them to other dealers. So I was able to buy things at quite reasonable prices and I saw an opportunity to build up a really great collection of Chinese textiles and I don't think that it would be possible today to build up a similar collection, regardless of how much money one has. And did any of it get sourced from mainland China itself? I have been buying some from mainland China, but mainly later pieces. For example, I've been buying Changsam, or Qipao, from mainland China. I remember going to Shanghai about 15, 20 years ago, and you could buy a Changsam for 100 renminbi, 200 renminbi. So I've built up a collection of Changsam. And in fact, the Singapore Museum will be doing an exhibition of Chinese fashion from 1876 to 1976. And they'll now be borrowing a lot of these Changsam that I've accumulated. One of the things they also want, which I'm sort of looking for, is a mouse suit. Is that easy to come across these days? Um, I've asked a dealer in Beijing. There must be lots of Mao suits available. I would like a Mao suit with provenance, so you know the person who wore it, which then will make it much more interesting. I went to a Chinese textile exhibition at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, and I saw something that has made an impression on me. It was a man's changsam. This is the long scholar's blue-gray robe. There's nothing to look at, but the story was wonderful. Mm. There was a mother who wanted her son to look like a gentleman. So she took in extra laundry. She worked very hard so that she could get this robe made for the son so that when the son left her, he wore the robe and he looked like a gentleman. What the mother didn't know was that the first thing her son did was to go and join the Communist Party. But he knew how much this robe had meant to his mother, so he kept it with him all through the long march, and eventually he ended up in Australia, and he then donated this to the Powerhouse Museum. It just goes to show 
the importance of clothing. Now, with your collection, how did you feel when you were finding pieces or buying pieces that were hundreds of years old? Um, I found it very exciting. You would go to a dealer and you'd see some wonderful things which you could then add to your collection. I mean, one of the dealers told me that if I saw something in the early days, my excitement was visible, so he knew he could add something to the price. Uh, <laughs> I've learnt to control my excitement <laughs> since then. Oh, funny. So what's the earliest piece you've got? My earliest piece is about 500 BC from the Warring States. It's only a small fragment with a dragon and phoenix design. But I collect textiles from all periods, including the 21st century. So I try to have good examples of, Chinese, of all types of Chinese textiles and not just clothing, it's sort of furniture covers, religious textiles, carpets, hats, shoes. So is it gradually expanding or do you get rid of a few items along the way as you go along or you just, because I, I will have a look in a moment, but I, it's, it's, it's in sh large shallow drawers, yes. it's, it's hanging. So it's, it's a, quite a collection to maintain and keep. The two biggest dangers for textiles are humidity and lighting. So you need to keep textiles out of the light. So textiles are not good things to display. You have to display them in reduced lighting. So often if you go to an exhibition of textiles, it feels as if you're going into a darkened room. You can still see the textiles because the eyes quickly adjust and the humidity will also rot them. So storage, you can keep the textiles in drawers out of the light and you keep the air conditioning or dehumidifier on 24 hours a day and they're okay. I mean, insects can be a problem, but if you keep the humidity down, then the insects shouldn't be such a problem because many insects absorb water through the atmosphere. So they do not like a dry environment. So if you keep it dry, that also discourages the insects. So yes, all, all, you're describing all aspects of risks of Hong Kong in essence, yes. yes. Uh, uh, Hong Kong is far from being the best place to keep textiles. In fact, Tibet was one of the best places to keep because it was a cold, dry climate. And the textiles were ideal conditions because many of the textiles were used for annual ceremonies. If you leave a textile folded up for a long period of time, it will start to fray at the fold, or insects can come in and lay their eggs and eat the textile. But if you take it out once a year, give it a good airing and then put it back again, and then hopefully fold it slightly differently, then that is the best way to keep the textile. So the Tibetan monasteries were doing the right thing for the textiles, even though they didn't know it. So you've managed to keep a variety of your collection here at, at your house. So what would you say, I mean, it's a bit of a, a, a twee question in a way, but can you name a couple of your favorite items? I'd say my favorite item is a dragon robe dating back to the early 15th century. It's made completely of counted stitch embroidery, which is the technical term. People would understand this more as petty point. I mean, this robe probably has about two million stitches in it. Oh, wow. And it's very finely embroidered. On the back, there's one magnificent dragon. It has a pink background. And it's the earliest dragon robe to have survived above ground. 
I'm not aware of another dragon robe that is older that has survived above ground. There how, are, how do you mean above ground? Um, as opposed to coming out of a tomb. I see, right. I mean, most of the robes that come out of a tomb, they've turned a brown colour, they've lost their colour. It's like looking at a tea-stained rag. Do you know any of the provenance of your dragon robe? Uh, well, this would have been in a... Tibetan monastery and they'd obviously used it over many years. The robe had been turned inside out because I think sort of the outside had got a bit faded so they had reversed it and then they put round leather patches which were then gilded with gold over the eyes just to make it even more glitzy. <laughs> so once the robe was acquired, the leather roundels were removed. It was reversed back to showing the original exterior. So it received a lot of tender, loving care. And it now looks a magnificent robe. But as you're describing the artistry, the amount of time that's involved in two million stitches and the skills, and this would have been made where in China? We do not know where most of the items were made. We can guess the four main areas for making textiles. So Suzhou is the main centre for embroidery. Hangzhou and Nanjing are the main centres for weaving. And then also... Uh, when the court moved to Beijing, textiles were made in Beijing as well. But of course, textiles were made all over China. Every home had a lady who was making silk, doing embroidery. That's what Chinese ladies did. So in my collection, I have many things that were made at home for the ladies to wear or for their husbands or brothers to wear. Little purses and things like that. Also, you have many ladies' shoes. As I said, I collect everything connected with textiles. So I have a collection of bound foot shoes, which were called lotus shoes, many of which were beautifully embroidered. The foot of a lady was often considered to be her most sexually attractive part of her body. So that when the lady dressed, she would put a beautiful embroidered shoe on her foot, but it was so small but she would also then put a beautifully embroidered ankle cover above it. She would then tuck the bottom of her trousers into the ankle cover so that the trousers were fairly plain, but the ankle cover would then help to direct the gaze to her beautiful feet. What do you think about that? It was the custom of the time. I do not think it fair to criticise people for what happened in the past. We think ourselves incredibly sophisticated and say, look, we wouldn't do that. But in 500 years' time, people will look back to the early 21st century <laughs> and say these people were primitives. Yes. Look at the way they treated the environment and the climate. Essentially, the custom was that all Chinese ladies had to bind their feet in order to get a husband. The only Chinese ladies who didn't bind their feet were the Manchu ladies, the ruling elite, or the black and whites, the armors who never married, so they devoted themselves to a family. It was incredibly painful, but if you think about 
the Edwardian ladies of Britain who wore very tight corsets which were painful and many of them fainted. It seems to be a natural human reaction that we are dissatisfied with our bodies. I mean, many cultures have distorted the bodies, such as the Mayans in Central America pushed the forehead back. The Egyptians drilled holes in their teeth in order to put turquoise in. That can't have been comfortable. I think it is naturally good that, I mean, with education, foot binding is no longer practiced. And in fact, probably the last lady to have bound feet probably died just a few years ago at the beginning of this century. I mean, I also have in my collection little leather shoes to be worn by ladies who had bound feet. I mean, in the Republican period, many ladies let out their feet so that instead of being about three or four inches long, they were about five or six inches long. This is a pair of shoes, beautifully embroidered. The most prominent feature is a black oxen, and there's a beautiful pink flower. Now, this is the flower that oxen particularly like to eat, and this shoe would have been worn by a young girl who was looking for her ox, a future husband. Oh, I see. I have a shoe here with four horses beautifully embroidered on it, and of course, wearing the two shoes together creates the eight horses, which is very auspicious in Chinese custom. And that's got quite a heel on it. It's not only just a lotus shoe, it's, it it's got a heel on it. You wouldn't want to walk a long way in that. No, no. I mean, when you look, it, it was you had to sort of shuffle along. Um, I wouldn't call it shuffling. Um, <laughs> Perhaps not the most gracious verb. No. Um, <laughs> or graceful. Yes, it was considered a very sexy and elegant walk and in fact the Manchu ladies who did not bind their feet they wore special shoes like this so they would walk on a central platform which this one is about one inch high oh, this yeah. is about this is a shoe for a wedding, being red in colour. So early, early platform shoes. And very, very indeed. <laughs> but the platform is not at the heel, it's right at the yes. centre, so that the heel and the toes stick out over it. So by wearing these shoes, it was thought that the Manchu lady could have a walk similar to a Han Chinese lady with bound feet. We've had a look at your shoes, Chris. What else would you like to show me? Well, I will show you some of the children's hats, which are great fun. We have here a fish hat for a little boy. And of course, the well-dressed boy needs fish shoes to go with the fish hat. Underneath the shoes, there is embroidery, which may surprise you. You'd think the underneath of the shoe would get very dirty. But remember, the little boy would spend much of his time hanging on his mother's back. So he would have been fairly well off? Yes, I mean, these are beautifully made, so these would have come from a wealthy family, but even a poor family would have had some beautiful things for their little boys. I mean, the poorest people in China are the minority tribes, and they have some beautifully embroidered baby carriers and things like that. And if you think your brother is a little pig, you give him a pig hat to wear, <laughs> and also pig shoes. They really are beautiful. How old are they? These are probably about 100 years old, say, early 20th century. But they're in immaculate condition. They wouldn't have been worn very often. 
absolutely lovely. And so with the, the fact that this is a pig, those are the fish, is there any in terms of good luck or um, zodiac signs or anything? The most usual hatch you see for a boy is a tiger in order to protect the boy against evil spirits. Also, the reason why a boy would wear an animal hat, it would hope to try and deceive the evil spirits into thinking that he was not a boy, but just an animal, therefore not worthwhile making sick or killing. And uh, what about girls? Uh, girls are not important. But you have also here phoenix shoes for a girl, I see. Yes, here they are, beautiful red shoes for a, probably a little girl of about three years old. Yes. When did you first start collecting then? I became interested in 78, but I've been collecting seriously since 85. And uh, do you still carry on today? I'm still collecting today. In fact, later this morning, a friend from Australia will come and he normally brings one or two things to show me and I usually succumb to temptation, <laughs> and he then gets, he has a little bit of money to pay for his holiday. A lot of the time, when you said it right, when you begin in the late 70s, early 80s, these items are coming in from yeah. Tibet via Nepal. Yeah. These days, is it a bit tougher to find things? Is there more collectors interested? There's much less on the market. I wouldn't see so many Ming pieces, and when very good things do come on the market, they often go for hundreds of thousands of US dollars and I can't afford them. No, fair enough. Would you say that uh, following on from, you know, obviously during the Cultural Revolution there would have been less interest, would you say that now China itself is far more interested in its own heritage? Uh, certainly. I mean, there are now Chinese collectors, not many collectors of textiles, but there are a few. In the Mongol period, the Mongols wore cloth of gold. This is a piece of cloth of gold where you can see the front is covered completely with gold thread and the design is just where the gold thread goes behind the red backing cloth. So you can see some red lines on it to create the flowers and the foliage. So you can see the back is red mm. and the gold just comes through in very small areas. And this would be used, I mean, there's bits, just a bit cut out in the corner yes. here. So this would be used for? A robe. For many people, they might just use the edging. Mm. They'd use small strips as edging. But for the really wealthy, a complete robe would be made out of this. Wow. Gold so, thread. So this is about 600 years old. <laughs> And look, I mean, doesn't it really doesn't look 600 years old, not at yeah. all. No this, no, this is a recent purchase. I purchased this earlier this year. Mm. This is a large Tang roundel, which is about 1,200 years old, with two winged horses on it. What's a roundel? A roundel is round. <laughs> it's, a, it's a circular design. And this is how old? This is 1,200 years old. For me, it's always about human history, the idea that somebody has sat there and, yeah. and made this. At certain points in history, where, like with that item, there would have been people who were trained up, there would have been whole, a whole little industry going. This is a skilled weaver, yeah. and this probably comes from Western China. And this would be done on a loom? Yes. And this is a design of two horses? Yes. Yeah, wonderful stuff. Also with some gold thread. Yes. And then largely green and, what, how would you describe it, green and brownish red? Uh, it'd be green and red. The red 
has faded over 1,200 years. It would Fair have enough. been a bright red <laughs> yes. and some blue. And this would have been worn by whom? Um, I do not know. I think this piece would probably have been used as a sleeve for a robe, but that's a guess. So can you talk to me a little bit about the weaving process of these of very old items? Yes. Weaving is a very complicated process and in fact the earliest computer is a loom. This is the Jacquard loom that was invented in France 200 years ago. For the Chinese they created very sophisticated looms. Now when you're weaving it can take up to six months to prepare the loom so that the pattern threads are all in the right order and then once you've got this set up it would then take about two weeks to weave a bolt of cloth but you could then weave the same pattern time and time and time again as many bolts as you wanted. So it's a whole different era in terms of as you say, time involved, the level of hours of... Yes. Also manual stitching, I should think. As well. Yes, but I mean, if you go to a factory today, you will see weaving machines. They are doing the same thing, except they don't need a person to actually be there. They do it all automatically. The design is prepared beforehand, fed into the machine, and it weaves the cloth automatically. And this piece is 2,000 years old. You can see the squirrel and the grapes, which is a traditional Chinese pattern. 2,000 years old. Yes, just, it's a piece of it's, embroidery. It's, yeah, I have to say it's quite odd to, to be here in your house looking at something that's, that's of, that, of that age, as opposed to standing in a museum somehow. Yes. <laughs> well, I can claim that my collection of Chinese textiles is certainly within the 10 best in the world. As I said, my aim has been to have good examples of Chinese textiles of every type and every period. So I presume museums are very interested in sometimes showing your items? Yes. Part of my collection is presently on loan to the National Silk Museum in China in Hangzhou. So if you go there, all the Ming pieces are from my collection. The Asian Civilizations Museum in Singapore also has pieces on display that I've lent to them. And in fact, the Liangyi Museum in September will open a new exhibition of Chinese accessories. And many of those accessories are borrowed from my collection. The, the Liangyi Museum is in Hollywood Road. Uh, so this would have been an official vest for the wife of a first-rank official, as you can see from the crane with a red head. I see. So each of the birds are very much show the insignia of a certain level of official. Correct. All official, for the nine official ranks, were each represented by a bird, and the nine military ranks were each represented by an animal. Many museums throughout the world asked to borrow things from me. One of the most entertaining was when the Museum of Sex in New York borrowed from me a prostitute's apron, or dodo as it's called. This is a very demure piece of cloth uh, with a blue floral pattern on the front. But when you lift up the flap, you can then see four amorous couples, um, beautifully painted. This is a, from the early Republican period, about 100 years ago. One of the ladies is completely naked, except that she's wearing her gentleman admirer's trippy hat. 
My thanks to Chris Hall talking there on his beautiful Chinese textiles collection. Next week, I talk with Jerome Tam of the one-stop wedding platform Our Big Day, where people can sort out all aspects of their wedding day and learn about typical Hong Kong Chinese wedding traditions. Usually, the gold that the groom's family will give come into this endowment, but they kind of go back to the to the grooms, and you give it at the junior tea ceremony. And uh, yes, it's very much a huge part of it. And I think you know, yes, these are not day wear. There are some that are changing. So Jenny got a really lovely necklace for my parents that it could be wear in a day. It's not just like you know pigs and <laughs> big otters and things like that. But I think nowadays a lot of that and reason why it's still kept in gold is because gold holds some value. And uh, actually, most of the jewelry companies sells these jewelry. Majority of them charge the gold just the, the price of gold with a small amount of like a craftsmanship fee on top of it. Because the idea is also like this is a, a way to help the couple down the road. You know, you, you, obviously, unless you need to, you know, you don't want to sell them. But you know, if if down the road you you do come into difficulties, you at least have a little bit of financial support if you ever need to like pawn it or sell it. That's Jerome Tam of Our Big Day, who will be on the program next week. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>